pediatric speech language pathologist and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. Today we're going to be continuing the series that we've been doing the past, oh, I think this is our fourth show, and talking about apraxia or suspected childhood apraxia of speech in toddlers and preschoolers. Now, if you've joined me for the previous three shows, you'll know that we say suspected childhood apraxia of speech anytime a child is under three because it's so difficult to really get that differential diagnosis, which is the professional term for meaning we are right, <laughs> that we're getting the right diagnosis. We try not to do that for kids under three. But just because we can't officially diagnose it, we still want to treat it. So that's what these last four shows have been about. And so today we're really going to get it continue that and in the first show in 431 we talked about identification of characteristics of children uh, and particularly toddlers and preschoolers so in that youngest developmental phase what they look like when they have markers for apraxia then in 432 we started the treatment uh, strategies for that and we did that in 432 and 433 and those were fairly technical shows so in this show in 434 we are going to take that technical information that we did in shows 432 and 433 and really focus on how we can use that same information and then teach it to parents because that's when kids get better. And so as a professional for this show, we're going to take the information that we did in 432 and 433 and really summarize it and break it down into a one-page handout <laughs> that you can share with parents in one of your first visits and or one of the first times that you start to really really talk about apraxia and how your treatment should look different. And so again, uh, use this as your script. So as you're listening throughout the rest of this show, if you are a therapist, take these ways to explain things and take these strategies and why we recommend these strategies and adapt them and use them in your own practices uh, with the families that you serve. And again, I held up the handout, but you can get this one-page handout that walks you through these five best tips for parents for treating toddlers and preschoolers with apraxia. You can get this with the purchase of a CE credit for just five dollars and then for parents we've also opened that up even if you don't want to file all the forms to get your CE credit and get a certificate you can also purchase uh, this PDF and so what we're going to do for you if you're a parent in this show is really wrap this information up and then talk about how you as a mom or a dad or as a grandparent can directly implement all of these therapy strategies that we've been discussing and then I'm going to add some more practical things that we haven't talked about in the other shows too but I just want you to be as successful as you can be in working with your youngest clients or with your own child or your own grandchild who uh, has characteristics of apraxia. So we're going to start with these five strategies and I'm doing this like more in an overview than we've done in the previous two shows and I want to really present this as bite-sized chunks. So perhaps if you're a professional and if you were watching this and you think, oh, I don't really need this family that I'm working with to hear all of these boys, but if this mom could just get this one strategy, so I'm going to have this uh, delineated in a timed agenda on my website at Teach Me to Talk, and then there below uh, on YouTube, you can look at that and you can tell where each of these five strategies start. So that might make it easier for you to share with parents too. All right, and again, I mentioned the written summary, uh, the information, and I want you to be sure that you know how to access that information. So the younger a child is, the more important it's going to be that we 
implement a treatment uh, program like this with the child. So many times as speech language pathologists and other professionals, other therapists, we take techniques meant for older kids and then try to use them on our younger kids. And they just simply don't work. And so we're going to talk about why we are recommending the techniques that we're recommending and why these strategies work so that parents understand how therapy for apraxia, why, why they might be doing things differently than maybe than you had even started with them because language facilitation techniques are not going to be as successful with kids with apraxia. We've got to plan these motor treatment things too. And so again, that's what's been so technical about the last couple of shows. We're going to break this down and really talk about uh, how we can teach these things to parents. Now, let me say one more thing. When you're sharing a tool like this with a parent, or if you are uh, recommending that a parent start watching a podcast like this, you've got to really watch yourself because we cannot recommend to parents things that we don't actually model for them and things that we don't show them how to do in sessions. So let's just take an example. Like we're going to talk about in uh, making learning to talk as fun as possible for our little friends. And we might say something like, we're going to alternate activities between moving around and sitting down. But then in the therapy session, as the therapist, we force the kid to sit there 30 minutes. And every time they try to get up, we say, sit down, come back, listen. And we don't do that. We don't model for a parent how to really alternate that so that we can maximize our effectiveness in a session. And so you've got to be careful as a, as a professional that you're really listening to these strategies and that these are things that you're using too. So that if a parent asks you about it, or if you're talking about it with a parent, you don't feel a little bit uncomfortable at the hypocrisy <laughs> that you might find there in yourself. And again, I'm saying that why am I saying this because I'm preaching to myself here so we always have to be sure that what we are recommending to parents and what we know that we read as best practice and that we glean from all this research that we consume we make sure that we are implementing that and getting it from all this theory down to the floor for it really really matters uh, with our youngest little friends and so uh, I, I think a tool like this is a great a great way to get that going so we can be, be sure that we are on track as professionals and then that we are sharing the very best information that we have uh, to help treat toddlers and preschoolers with apraxia okay so let's get going with these strategies and let me just say again that this will be sort of a summary of the things that we have talked about in the previous two shows but we want to package it differently today so that we can talk about how we share this information with parents. And so this is really, really important with strategy number one that we're going to share with parents. Know that some goals come before talking. Now, as a pediatric speech-language pathologist, you know that, and you may be cheering as you listen to me say that because so many times with parents, when we say we're starting speech therapy, they think what? that we're just jumping straight to words and that in, you know, one hour or less, their child's going to walk out talking, right? And that is pretty unrealistic. And so especially when we have a child who's gone on to get a diagnosis beyond speech delay or language delay. Now, as so we've talked about, apraxia is a neurological speech diagnosis that we get, that, that children get, or that someone in 
uh, and adults would get, uh, and let's just keep it to kids so that I don't muddy up this whole conversation. When we, when there is difficulty motor planning, meaning getting the word from here, that child's little brain, he knows what he wants to say, to send that pat, that that word over his motor pathway in his brain through his nerves to connect to his articulators or the places in his mouth that he needs to shape differently to produce speech sounds that all come together to form a word that you understand. All right, that's a complicated process. And so when that happens with apraxia, you know, again, the kids know what they want to say here. They just can't get it to their little mouths. And so when apraxia is the only problem, um, when, when a child is having difficulty with that, that apraxia is kind of that standalone diagnosis. The kicker is, is we spend a lot of time talking about 431, and we're not going to do that today, but the kicker is lots of kids can also have apraxia as a part of another broader developmental problem that's really the the crux of what's causing that child's communication problem and perhaps even some other area other areas of concern or other that he may have some motor delays he may have some social issues like we would see with autism and then a, a kid can still have autism and apraxia and so it's really really important when we have these kids who have that apraxia is just the speech part like we were to put I started talking about it's here it's here it's a neurological condition and we don't see any evidence of any uh, issue with the child's uh, musculature or his uh, particular speech structures like his lips or his tongue or his jaw, his cheek muscles. We don't see that evidence again with apraxia because the problem is here. But we know that those kids, just because we have that speech problem and that's why they're not really getting that word out, there still may be some other things that we have to address before that child is developmentally ready to talk. Now, we, as speech-language pathologists, know this kind of thing, but once a parent gets a diagnosis or they think, oh, my child has apraxia, they may rule out these other things, and they're just so focused on apraxia that they ignore the other uh, signs and symptoms of a bigger developmental communication problem. And so we have to talk parents through this. And as a parent, as you were listening to this, we spent a lot of time talking about these other things that we might have to address back and show forth. 432 and 433. And so this is part of it. Uh, when a child does not, it doesn't matter if he has apraxia or not, if he's not talking, we've got to make sure that we're covering all our bases. And, and the apraxia, you know, notwithstanding, if he doesn't master these earlier, easier pre-linguistic skills, he's still not going to talk. We haven't even gotten to the apraxia yet. And so we have to make sure that a child, if he needs to strengthen any pre-linguistic skills, and let me give you some examples of some of these. It might be that he doesn't always respond to other people in his environment like he should. And so that would be a kid who may also go on to get a diagnosis like autism. And we know that over 60% of kids with autism also have apraxia. So these are two diagnoses that we see together a lot. But let me just say, as an SLP, you can't get to the apraxia or treating the speech part until you address the social communication piece. And so that would be a prelinguistic skill that we're going to have to address first. It might be a kid who also has 
difficulty understanding directions. And so we call that receptive language. So not only would he have difficulty expressing himself, he also has difficulty understanding what words mean. And so a kid is not going to be able to use words until he understands words. And so we have to address that piece first. And so we can't get to the apraxia yet because that's just the talking piece. We've got to get the comprehension piece too. It might be that we have to address the kid's attention because it's going to be really, really hard to work with a busy, busy, busy two or three year old. And, and we're going to still make all of our activities and all of our strategies developmentally appropriate and address those kinds of things. But if we have a kid who can't pay attention for longer than about five seconds, we're not going to be very effective. And so we have to address all of these pre-linguistic things. So this is part of our tip number one to parents. Know that some goals will come before talking. The second piece of this is that a child may also need another way to communicate before talking is a realistic goal for him. And so we talked a lot about this in show 432. And so go back and listen to that if you need the specifics. But this is something that parents of kids with apraxia really need to deal with up front, especially if we have a child who's super, super frustrated that he can't get anybody to understand what he wants to communicate with them. So when we don't work on these things at the beginning, we delay a child's progress even more. He's not going to talk until he's developmentally ready. Again, that's with or without apraxia. And so we have to make sure that we get all of those foundational skills in place with those pre-linguistic skills. And then we talked about the next part of this. If a child needs a way to communicate and he has no way to communicate his wants and needs, that has to be our first overall goal for therapy. Even speech therapy, even when we're focused on talking, we still need to make sure that we are giving that child a way, a mode to communicate all those wonderful messages that he wants to share with the people who mean the very most to him. And so we talked about that. It's going to look different for different kids. Some kids may turn out to learn sign language. And as I shared back in show, uh, I'm not sure if it was 432 or 433, but I believe sign language actually primes a child's system for motor planning because when we can get him doing more complex language things out here, naturally those things are, we there Theoretically, let's say this, theoretically, we hope those things naturally transfer to a child's mouth because fine motor skills out here when a child is using sign language, you know, again, uh, we use fine motor skills to speech uh, to speak too for our speech and so uh, it might be pictures that a child needs to use pictures to learn how to communicate and we talked about those differences in just giving a kid you know any kind of very uh, lax picture communication system versus one that's research based like PECS the official name uh, or the abbreviation for the system that's officially called the picture exchange communication system and we talked about how some of our little friends their motor planning would be so impacted that they cannot use sign language, but we still have to give them another way to communicate. So for those kids, we might do picture exchange, or we might do a speech generating device or some kind of tablet or some other, uh, uh, some, it, it's a little higher tech, but we're giving them again, another way uh, to communicate a message. And so we can't be negative about these things as speech language pathologists or as parents. And so as parents or as grandparents, you may have to really, really get over that and we have to really talk to yourself and kind of preach to yourself a little bit in that you tell yourself, 
This is not going to keep him from talking. This is going to help him learn how to communicate. He is a frustrated little boy because he can't talk to me and he knows it. He knows he can't tell me things. So I have got to give him another way to be able to uh, make his wants and needs known. And so that link is below if you want to hear that discussion about uh, the other kinds of alternatives that we can offer our little friends who uh, are we're first becoming uh, aware that apraxia is their speech diagnosis and so those are the things that we have to talk with parents about up front all right so we've gotten that out of the way so let's move on to the things that are really really important and the things that look more like therapy so let's talk about the second tip for parents for treating toddlers and preschoolers with apraxia and again this is kind of an overview one but it sets the stage for everything else we have got to make learning to talk as fun as possible now I cannot stress this enough I spend a whole lot of time on my website at teach me to talk and if you're on my email list and get my daily emails you know this is one of the cornerstone philosophies of my practice and it's something that I try to teach every person who even sort of wants to ask me, is there a better way to do speech therapy with toddlers and preschoolers? And the answer is yes, we have got to make this fun. And when a child is coming to us with all of the challenges and all the difficulties associated with learning how to talk that we know apraxia brings, we have got to do an even better job of making speech therapy as fun as possible. And so I try to talk about this very early on with parents and I say, you know, when you're when you're learning how to talk if it were, if this were just a speech or language delay it would be hard but it's going to be harder for your child and again I use this example whether it's apraxia or whether it's autism or down syndrome or any other medical or developmental diagnosis that we've that a child has has gotten or received and so we say up front hey we know this is hard this is hard for him and I also say to parents that I know that you have probably done a lot of things at home already to help your child learn how to talk and I know that has been hard for you and so not only is your child frustrated in not being able to communicate everything that she wants to communicate you as his parent or her parent are equally frustrated that she's not able to communicate the things uh, that she wants to communicate and so we have to find a way as professionals at the very beginning to take some of this pressure off so one of the things that I talk to parents about straight up front is you know talking is not something that's going to happen for your child today or tomorrow or short-term goal we've got to look at talking like learning to talk here is going to be a long-term goal for us and so in the meantime we've got to prioritize some other things and so because we want to make learning to talk as fun as possible and because this has been so hard at the beginning we are just going to prioritize participation and communication and so what do I mean by participation I mean that I just want that child with me I just want him staying with me I want him to learn to like me I want him to like the things that I offer for him to do during therapy time. I want to choose things that are relevant. We're going to we're going to talk about that too. And then the other part of that is communication. I don't want to be so picky about how he sounds when he talks that I drive him away from me. I want to do everything I can to bring him to me. And so as a therapist, when you're talking about this in this way to parents, they also begin to feel this way and they also begin to think 
she's right. It is more important to me that I keep him with me, especially at the beginning when we are first starting to work on this little speech homework at home. It is more important that he stays with me and that he likes it and that he's not running away and that he's not trying to get away from me. And so that's why we do this at the beginning and we tell parents, hey, we want to make this fun. And because talking is so hard, it's not going to all be about talking. Our very first priority is that going to be that we get a good relationship established here and that your child likes me and trusts me and that I love your child and that we are just going to make this about learning how to communicate and learning how to share these experiences. And so I'm going to, as we go through the show, give you a lot more specific strategies and things that are a lot more technical than this, like shaping and like mass practice and like cueing and all the things that we've talked about back in podcast 432 and 433. But you have to keep this in mind. We always have to value what a child says over how he says it. So we have to always prioritize that message. We have to look for that message. We have to look for the reason a child is communicating. And I see this happen all the time in in therapy sessions where a therapist is so focused on what a child, how a child is saying it. And again, that's why they're there for speech therapy. But we miss that. We miss the intent of a child's message. And then we frustrate a child even more because we're thinking about the articulatory accuracy and the child's intelligibility versus, hey, this is a two-year-old who's trying to tell me that his knee hurts. Or this is a two-year-old who has to, a three-year-old who has to go to potty, you know? And so we have to think about these things. And again, focus on the meaning and focus on that value in communication over this, uh, we have to get all the sounds in the right places all the time. Now, some parents are naturally good at this already, and they already sense that their child is extremely frustrated, and they are already doing everything they can to help learning how to communicate be a pleasant experience. But some parents aren't, and some parents aren't in that spot yet, and they think that this is just a situation where they've got to really drive their child and drive you as the therapist. And so for those parents, we have to realize where that's coming from. Again, it's from their own frustration and their own lack of control over the situation. And so we've got to take a step back and be sure that we are the place as SLPs for safe haven for these families and really talk about making this fun. And so saying to a parent, look, we're going to prioritize these other things first. We're going to get to talking. Talking is huge. That's why you're here. But at the beginning, we have to make sure that things are fun for your child and we have to actually build success for therapy. And parents have to extend that at home as well because they don't need to take the good things that you have going with their child and ruin it. And I'm saying that again in being on the other side of that is a parent, and I know that I have certainly done that with my own children, taking ideas and taking things that were supposed to be fun and motivating and educational and just totally ruined it by putting too many demands and too many expectations. And so we have to remember when things start getting super frustrating for a parent or for a child, we have to change things. And so as a parent, that's my whole point about this whole tip with number two making learning to talk as fun as possible. When things are going wrong, you've got to take a step back and do something differently. And so uh, another thing that I always tell parents is we don't want to get started. We don't want to have a negative start because if we have a negative start, we're more likely than not going to have a negative finish. 
fresh. And we don't want to do that. We want to get good results. So what do we think about at the very beginning then? How can we ensure that we motivate a child and that we do make this as pleasant as possible? Well, first of all, I think about that I like to do the things I like to do. So that means I'm going to start with my favorite things to motivate me. And that's what we have to do with the child too. start with their very favorite things. And so we want to link positive feelings for the both of you. And that's with parents and children, as well as therapists and children, when they're learning to talk and, and especially practicing these new skills at home. And so this is going to be a big, big shift for families who have already been in power struggles with their children. And these are going to be big, big shifts for families who already expect therapy to look different. They may think you're going to come in and crack the whip on their child and, you know, the, just the way that you make them sit down and mind you and behave. And all of a sudden that's going to be the, the, the magic pill for talking. And you have to say, no, we are going to play and play and play and play and play. And we're going to do some real speechy stuff too. But at the heart of all of that, we're going to play and we're going to make this really, really, really fun for your child because we have to get it, uh, all of our strategies to a point that they are uh, developmentally appropriate. And again, we start by choosing preferences here. So we choose activities that are motivating and not boring. And so we say that to parents and we say, you know, look, we're trying to do this in therapy sessions. And if you uh, get to do home visits, where you're still taking in some of your materials or particularly when you're not taking in any of your materials you've already gotten good at this next piece uh, that I want that I'm going to share with you but for for therapists that are are where children are coming to you where you are seeing them in a clinical setting or in an educational setting you you are probably need to talk to parents about hey I'm doing everything I can up front here to choose activities again that are motivating and that are not boring. And we're going to talk again about some tools that you can use for that in a minute. Uh, but, but the good news is, the good news is, the good news is, <laughs> we can work speech practice into anything. So when we're talking with this about parents, we say, not only do you want to pick toys, so if, if your child is really into Toy Story and he loves Buzz Lightyear and that's his favorite toy in the world, that's what we're going to use for speech therapy practice. We can also think about it for chores around the house. If your little girl is into vacuuming and sweeping and you have to fight her every time you get the vacuum out because she loves it so much, we might be able to use that for some speech therapy practice, right? Because it's what she already loves. Any daily routine you already have going. If your child loves bath time, that's when you're going to practice speech. You're going to link practicing talking with what your child already likes to do. Because again, we want to make this as pleasant and as motivating as possible. Now, the second part of this news is as a parent, you already know, like if I don't know your child already, I'm good with kids and I've done this job a long, long time. But it's going to take me some time to figure out what your child likes to do. As a parent, you don't have that lag. You already know. So at, think about this from the get-go. And this is what I say to parents. I say, I'm going to really pick your brain. And I I'm going to want to know what a child's favorite things to do are. But you're already at that, that point. With, you're all, you already know with your kids. So let's start there. Let's start at those points and at those times that you know he wants to communicate. And you know it's already fun 
fun for her and you know this is something she wants to do, that's when I want you to already kind of have in your mind these are the things that you're going to do throughout the day with her. Now again, I'm going to I'm going to tell you how to do it and give you those specific strategies, but those are the things I want you to start thinking about in your mind too. This has to be fun for my kids, so I better come up with some fun things to do. Now the opposite of that is true too. When it's going terrible at home, don't worry about talking. Don't worry about the speech stuff. And I say this to parents all the time, and I do this because it takes the pressure off them. And that's what I want them to see me do in sessions too. When their child is sick, or when their child has just had the biggest meltdown ever, I don't want them to see me getting right back to that speech practice. Why? Because it's not going to work. It's not going to be successful. We've got to do something different with that child at, at that point. Dr. Stanley Greenspan, one of the favorite things that I ever ever retained from his uh, listening to him talk about, and this is not about apraxia, but this is about floor time and uh, closing circles of communication. He said, you, when a kid looks like they're overstimulated, they are. And by nature, overstimulated means I can't take any more stimulation. And so that's what I'm talking about too. And saying that to families up front as therapists saying, hey, listen, when things are going terrible, when you're trying this at home and you are getting nowhere and you feel like, you know, you just want to strangle him, just stop. That's not how we want this to go, particularly at the beginning. And we have to remember too that a lot of times kids are coming to us with negative experiences. You may be the replacement therapist. They may have tried therapy with someone else who has a different approach than you do and it might have been completely horrible. And so we need to think about that too. So if families are coming to us and this is, they're coming to you for a different opinion or for a different approach, you've got to get going with a different philosophy. So making sure that we start off at the beginning with things that a child likes to do. And so I do a lot of talking about that. And if you were on my email list and get my daily emails, you've probably seen this tool that I send out from time to time. And I, this is included in the autism workbook and I call it first visit questions. And these are just the questions that we're going to ask a family. What does your child like to do? What are his favorite foods? things to do, his favorite activities, his favorite shows, his favorite people. I ask a lot of questions about those kinds of things. What's easy for your child? What are some toys that are just really, really easy? What are, how does he like to spend his time? When, when you are just, if you had to log his time, what does he do most often during the day? Those are things I want to, I want to know. Why? Because I want to include as many of those things as possible. And as a parent working with your child at home, that's what you need to think about too. How can I include as many of those things as possible, especially when we're talking about getting started with speech practice. The opposite is also true, and I just said this a second ago. I want to figure out the things that are hard for a kid. I want to know things he hates. Why? Because I want to avoid those things, especially at the beginning, and especially when we're trying to, again, reset and get speech started. Again, maybe uh, just resetting from the frustration that a family has felt trying to do this on their own, or especially when we're having to reset, when we are the next professional and it hasn't gone very well for a family. And so those are the kinds of things that we want to talk about 
and help a family really uh, make sure that they are doing with their child. All right, if you are new to my podcast, I just want to take a minute to introduce myself. I'm Laura Mize. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist. My website is Teach Me to Talk. We also have a YouTube channel here, and our whole mission, whether it's on our website or here on our YouTube channel, is to help parents like you or professionals like you teach toddlers to understand and use language. So if you feel that you've benefited from my videos or from my website, please consider purchasing the PDF for this show. Uh, that will make it certainly possible for us to continue to make these videos, especially for those uh, parents who can't. So the link for that is below. And thank you so much to those parents and grandparents who are already doing that. All right, so let's get back to this tip, making learning to talk as fun as possible. This next part of this tip is something that I already mentioned in the example during the first few minutes of the show, and that's when we're working with a very young child on learning how to talk or improving speech, whether it be at home or in a clinical setting, we always need to alternate the kinds of activities that we're offering. And because they're little nervous systems, we want to make them as alert and as ready and as just set to learn as possible. We, for very young children, you need to alternate uh, their activities with periods of moving around where they get up and do something else and sitting down. Now, skilled classroom teachers already know this, and it's a little different for kids who are uh, elementary school age because they're older and their systems are more mature. But for those of us who specialize in early intervention, this ought to be something that we talk to parents about all the time, and it sure better be something that we talk to parents of kids with apraxia about because we know from the research that shorter, more frequent bursts of practice are going to be more effective, and we have to alternate that with something. And again, for lots of our little guys, our youngest little friends, that will be movement. And so we do this because we want to promote better attention, and that leads to more efficient learning. And the practical side of this, when we really get skilled at this, and when we say we're going to do a sit-down activity, and then we're going to do a therapy activity where we get up and move around, and then we're going to come back and do a sit-down activity, and then we're going to get up and do a therapy activity when we move around. When we do that, the practical output of that is, or the outcome of that, is that we see much better participation and much better attention. And that means we get to do or have to do a lot less begging and pleading. And so you will notice that you don't say, come back, sit down, listen to me, pay attention. You'll stop saying those things if you can get a child and find that rhythm there between letting him get up and move around and then coming back and sitting down and focusing. And like I said before, we're not going to just have take, it's not like giving a kid a smoke break <laughs> where he's going to go out and, you know, do something completely unrelated to what his job is there with therapy. No, you're still going to continue your focus and continue your strategies. And I'll give you some examples of that in just a minute, but just know it's not really a break per se. It's just an opportunity to let his body get up and move. So we're going to purpose plan to get up and move around and then bring a kid to come and sit back down and, fo and focus. And this is through our whole therapy time together. And that's regardless of whether we are doing therapy at home, a home visit with a parent. And so if you are an early interventionist and you are an SLP in a state-based early intervention program and you're doing home visits with therapy for therapy with a family, that's how your therapy should look with them. You might even sit, think about doing your consultative things in your coaching part where you're sitting 
talking and talking with mom. That's your sitting down part. And then you're getting up and you're moving around and you're doing an activity with the child. And then you're coming back maybe to talk about it and focus on it. So think about how you can alternate that even in that kind of structure that you have to do with the child where you're naturally planning those times to coach and consult and mentor uh, parents as you're working with them. It needs to look like that even if you're doing school-based sessions where you are building in those movement breaks. And again, classroom teachers know this. Uh, even in our, our, our uh, preschool classrooms, skilled preschool teachers have those movement things built into their day. You go to this center and then children move to this center and then we go outside for recess and then we come back in for circle time and then we move over to the little table and do a little art activity. And so again, this is a natural part of how children learn. And so we can't expect children to sit still for an hour speech therapy. It, when they're two, it just doesn't work that way. That's just an unrealistic expectation. And so at home, parents may naturally do this practice for a little bit, like they may do a quote unquote speech activity with their child. And we're gonna talk about this in a minute where you know, maybe you're doing using your strategies at breakfast and then you move on with your day and then you come back together and maybe read a book to your child a little, you know, an hour or two later in the morning. Then you use your speech activities again. You know, again, parents may think about that and we can think about that kind of as structuring that move around and sit down activity. But they also need to think about just as they're moving from play routine to play routine uh, with uh, their own children at home and plan to alternate while still keeping it in therapy mode. And we talked about still doing, still using your strategies during that moving around part. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a child who, uh, you're, let's use this as a parent example. Let's say your child's favorite thing in the world is Paw Patrol. And let's say that also is uh, coincides with his speech goals because maybe he's working on consonant sounds at the front of his mouth, so bilabials. And so Paw Patrol is great. And so you've got your little character names and you're still saying those names, but you're getting him to say what? Paw Patrol and get those little lips closed and pop those little lips and hear that good P because that's his goal, one of his goal sounds for speech. And so let's say you do that and he's done great with that and you've been real effective with that, but he's just ready to get up and do something else. But your natural inclination might be to say, no, let's keep playing because he's doing so well. And you think I can get 10 more minutes of that. And that almost always ruins it. <laughs> so when a child, look for those natural breaks, look for those opportunities. When he's done great with you and it's only been 10 minutes, you need to celebrate. It's 10 minutes, he did so great. And then let him get up and do something else. Now you may be, be to the point where you can think, okay, what can my next play activity be? Okay, I'm working here with sounds at the front of his mouth. Why don't I do bubbles? Why don't we say pop? Why don't we say pow when we do those bubbles? Those, those are the same, I'm getting the same kinds of sounds there that I got with Paw Patrol. And so I'm gonna get up and we're gonna play those that, that, and then we're gonna come back. He loves Paw Patrol. He may be ready to sit down and play with that all over again, and then you get another 10 minutes, and then maybe you get up and you do, do something else. <coughs> Pardon me. Maybe this time you play with balloons because that's a starts with a B and that's also made at the front of your mouth. And so can you see how you can plan these activities even as a parent? Now, therapist, 
parents don't know how to do this unless you model this for them and unless you talk them through this. And so you've got to really say, hey, even though you're working on these things and even though your kid is having the time of his life and he thinks he's just playing with you, your job here is to keep these strategies moving. But more than anything, because it's the beginning here of therapy, you've got to keep this light. You've got to keep this fun. And the longer, the more you can do that, the longer he's going to stay with you. And you can really extend the length of these practice sessions that you get at home. But even if it doesn't work like that, even if that's just the most ideal situation ever, and you have a kid who'll sit with you for a minute or two, and then he needs to get up and run around and do something else for five or ten minutes, and then you still just get a minute or two coming back and sitting down, that is a much better way to do things than belting him in a high chair or forcing him uh, to stay with you when he's so negative and when he's crying and trying to, trying to get away from you. So as a therapist and as a parent, don't do that. Get up and move around with that child while you're still using their strategies. Now, like I said, uh, you can alternate those things, like I gave you some activities there you might do some chasing or some jumping on the bed or some throwing kids up in the air you may do things like that we talked about the kinds of toys you could use you might even do something where you roll a ball across the floor and chase it or push cars or trucks and chase them and then go go get them and then come back and start over it might be that you have more formal tools than that. You might have access to formal playground equipment, like a real slide, or you can take a child out or swing and really do that. But but then you get right back to that sit-down activity. And this is how therapists should structure our sessions. So we don't always want to tell parents they should practice like this and then not do it at home. So show them how to do it. And again, what's our research base for this? We know that specifically for apraxia, kids need those daily, frequent, short bursts of practice, that that's going to be more beneficial to establishing those new neural motor pathways than anything else we should give them. So that's certainly something that we uh, can teach parents to do. All right, um, let's move on now, and let's move on to talk about uh, strategy number three with playing imitation games all day long. Now, this is one of my very favorite strategies, and I have not talked about this on the podcast like I should have in this little series about apraxia, so I'm so excited to get to share uh, this strategy with you here today. So here we talk about focusing on how to teach a child to imitate. Now, if you've been following my website or if you're on my daily email list or if you hang around this YouTube channel a lot, you know that I have just done a whole series on teaching late talkers how to imitate. And that, uh, an eight-part series shows 421 through 429. So those are linked right there below in case that uh, piques your curiosity and you want to take a look at that. But learning how to imitate is how all of us learn everything, and it's especially how all of us learn how to talk. We hear somebody say a word, and then we say it. But before we get to words, we have to teach children how to imitate non-verbally first. What makes this harder for late talkers is they're often missing. Sometimes late talkers are missing that imitation piece. Let me say this so that you hear this about children with apraxia. Children with apraxia are almost always missing that piece.
peace. So it's not that sometimes it's not there, it's almost always not there. So for our children with apraxia, we have got to focus on imitation. And we have to focus on imitation, not just up there at words. We have to start with easier, earlier ways to teach a child how to imitate. Now, if you were with me through that whole series, 421 through 429, those are podcast numbers in case you're completely new to my channel and haven't heard me refer to shows like that. This is show number 434. And so that, yeah, I'm looking at my list to make sure I'm right. Those shows were 421 to 429. We walked through this whole book, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. And the whole premise of this is, is that kids learn how to imitate to learn how to talk. And so if you teach a child how to imitate, and if you start way back at those earliest levels of imitation, you can walk him through step by step to teaching him how to talk. And it's a very sequential process process. And again, why is this important for kids with apraxia? This is one of the reasons that they can't talk. It's one of the reasons that they will get an apraxia diagnosis. And so this is even harder for them than it is in the kids that I talked about in that series of shows that I just did, which is talking about teaching late talkers how to imitate. This is even more important for our kids who have an apraxia diagnosis or who will go on to get an apraxia diagnosis. And if your child is nonverbal, meaning doesn't say very much at all, might have only said a few words here and there, but he does not use words to communicate, even if he can sort of talk a little bit. He's just not a functional communicator. Or let's say he's minimally verbal, and the official diagnostic criteria for minimally verbal children is 50 words or less. So if you have a child who falls in that range, this imitation kind of copycat game is something you really need to get going because this will make learning how to talk so much easier for him. Now you may be thinking, should my child says more than this. My child is already doing phrases and some sentences, and I'm just relieved that we've finally gotten this apraxia diagnosis because now this explains why learning to talk has been so hard for him. Or maybe you're a parent that your child has been in speech for a couple years, but you're still coming back and faithfully listening to or watching all of these shows because you want to do everything you can to help your child be the best communicator possible. This is something you can do. This is something as a parent, even if your child is talking a blue streak, helping him learn how to play these imitation games with you so that imitating becomes just as easy to him as taking a drink from his sippy cup or from his drink box. You want it to be that efficient for him. And so this is something that you can do no matter where your child is in learning how to talk, whether he's already talking with some phrases and sentences, and again, you're just coming back to just be the best parent you can be and listen to that, or whether he's just starting it out. These little imitation games are just can just be life-changing, game-changing for you. And so again, why does it work? It's because you are helping him do the biggest thing that, the biggest reason, the biggest thing that's quote-unquote not or gone wrong or not working as it should be, and that's learning how to imitate. And so we're essentially teaching a kid how to make it more automatic to talk and to imitate and to vocalize. And so even after a child has learned how to talk or learned how to use uh, some, uh, even 
lots more words than this, we can still use these little games. So let's talk about how this looks and how you can teach it. So you think about it as just teaching little copycat games. And so if your child is already talking, you could probably start with some movements where uh, it would be game-based. You know, you might start with a song, like if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And so you've got him clapping his hands and your next little verse might be stomp your feet and your next little verse might be what? It might be say yay. And then you just go right into imitation words after that but the 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 thing you need to do too is kind of mix those motor actions even with those vocalizations so that's if your kids already talking that's the easy way to do it let's back up for all of those of us who work with kids all the time who aren't talking and who are in that nonverbal or minimally verbal category and maybe that's you as a parent with your own child so how do you get that going so it might be that you just take an opportunity when you are playing with him and he has done something that's wonderful and you want to praise him or if he has completed a task for you or if he said a word or whatever just find a way that you find a time that he can celebrate and that you can praise him and so you're just going to do that by clapping and then you're going to get him to imitate with clapping and you're going to get him to clap with you and what do you do if he doesn't do it you say you tell him show him help him which we're going to talk about in a minute that's how we cue everything so you know you're saying come on come on clap with me clap yay clap and so you do that part with him and then you're showing him how to clap and then help him if he doesn't start to clap with you you reach over and you take his little hands and you clap with him and then you clap because he clapped you celebrate that and you get really really excited about that and then you move it on to something else you say oh let's do this can you do this yay and you move it right along with getting him to do the next motor movement and you're having him maybe shake his little hands in the air and then uh, maybe if he's still with you you might try to do something like a, a fist pump in the air or you might jump up and down or you might turn around in a circle or you might throw yourself down on the floor I don't know I don't know what would be funny for you or your child but that's how you get that going you just get that game going and once they become pretty good at imitating those kinds of things and again this may not come as naturally as I've described it there you might have to do some other things your imitation with your child might be that you run across the room and that you just stand over there and you know just cheer them on come on come on you do it too run run to mama and that you get that kind of thing going there or like I said with jumping or it might be kicking you might just you know air kick where you're just say come on do it like mama do it like mama and you may have to play that kind of thing where he only imitates you for five seconds you might have to do that with him for weeks but guess what you're going to be able to move him along you'll be able to add that second movement and then that third movement and then that fourth movement and then when it gets good when he gets good at it and again it doesn't matter if it takes him weeks to get good at it or if it just takes him a few days to get good at it then start to add some vocalizations so you're going to bump up your imitation games so you've gone from imitating body movements to then imitating some things like play sounds so if you listen to my shows back in that imitation series this would be where you do things like sound effects so it would be like maybe a fake cough or you know some, start out with something easy like that like a fake cough or uh, let's say or, or just any little sound any just like even just a little ah 
You know, any little sound that he could do, or if he makes some animal sounds, that might be something you do. You model it first and then you see if he can copy that. And you introduce that as part of your game, where you add some little vocalizations, some verbalizations in there. And again, don't keep it there. As, as a parent or as a speech-language pathologist or another therapist, you might be thinking, oh, well, once I get him there, once he's imitated a couple of those vocal things, we're just, here we go, we're just taking off. It doesn't always work like that. You may have to back up to still do some of those motor things too, but my point here is this is something parents can do at home all the time. They can play these little games all the time where they start with clapping and then they move to jumping. They might blow kisses. They might wave. You might have them practice some of those uh, early communicative gestures that we need our kids to practice too, but that's certainly something uh, that, that uh, is just fantastic. Now, some toddlers, like I said before, are going to learn on this very quickly and pick this up, even though they have apraxia within a few weeks. But some won't. You may have to work on it for a while, and that's okay, because learning how to imitate like this, let me tell you what it really does. It sets the stage for all future success in speech therapy, because what we need kids with apraxia to do is be able to imitate frequently, and be able to imitate efficiently. And so even if they are messing up what the sound is, we still have to get that attempt to imitate. And that's what we're missing a lot in our youngest little friends with apraxia. And so you have to really work on that. And as a parent and as a therapist, you can get those things going. And you're not going to be able to get any more advanced therapy technique going until a child can imitate you pretty well and pretty pretty consistently so you've got to get that going so try anything try you know high fives try fist bumps try singing songs with hand motions any of that is going to be fantastic for a young child with apraxia so that was tip number what that was tip number three and if you were going to uh you know i always say in my shows if you're going to only retain one thing from this show let that be it let this be it. Play those imitation games all day long because it will make a huge difference, especially with toddlers and preschoolers uh, with apraxia. All right, third, uh, fourth tip. Let's move on to tip number four. We are, and again, this is kind of a common sense tip, but it's really a way for us to wrap our arms around all that technical information that we shared back in shows 432 and 433. So we are going to tell parents with toddlers and preschoolers with apraxia that they need to start easy and then build up from there. So many times when we think about a kid being in speech therapy, we think the second he's in the, our door or we are in his door, that we are gonna start with a new word right off the bat, we're starting a new word. No, that does not work. <laughs> Kids with apraxia have difficulty planning the speech movements that they need, and that trouble persists until they have that well-used neurological path. Now, forgive me if I'm being repetitive, but I want to talk to you about uh, motor planning with children with apraxia. We can compare that to a super highway that's been paved and that or you might even think about it maybe as a, like as a monorail track where it is just a high speed train just just blaring through or a super highway where 
you know, six lanes of traffic. It is perfectly constructed where the traffic, everybody drives at 85 or 100. That's like driving through Atlanta on I-75, right? <laughs> so th compare that. That's a kid who talks. That's a kid who his speech system is typically developing. He's got that well-worn highway where all his words are those vehicles just flying 85 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour. Compare that to a kid with apraxia. Do you know what he has? He has a bike path. <laughs> he has a path that is, you can't always tell where it goes. It's hilly and bumpy. It has grass. It has dirt. You can't get your Jeep through there. His, it's too, it, it can't get through. There's too much in the way. It is just a little bike path. And so no wonder his words, no wonder he can't get his words out. No wonder you can't understand him when he's trying to talk. So if you think about the motor pathway of a kid who has that super highway versus the motor pathway of a kid with apraxia. So that's what makes this tip so important. All the things that we're gonna talk about here in tip number four, turn the bike path into a super highway. And again, this is how we have to talk about this with parents. We have to start with something easy because we can't get over there yet. This is the system that our kid has. And so how, what do we mean? How, how can we make this make sense for kids, or be more effective for kids and make sense to parents? We always start a speech practice session, whether it's speech therapy, like I said, them coming to you or you going to them, with something that you know that a child can say. So if a child isn't even talking consistently yet, you may not even need to be what he can say. It might need to be something that a child can do. So for those kids, you might have to back up to, like I said, those earlier imitation games where you're getting those little uh, clapping and uh, patting your legs and doing all those little hand motions. You may have to start with that. And why do we do that? We always want to think about priming a child's pump. We cannot start too hard because there's nowhere to go. And if you start with the kid and make him negative right off the bat, even a parent at home, even if you're thinking, oh, I think he can say this word and you know, I know that he's been outside just playing you know, he's or he's been at preschool all day, but I think he can say this word. And then you wonder why he's falling apart crying for 10 minutes after that because you've started at something that's too hard. So when we start, even our little interactions with our children at home, when we're thinking we're going to do their speech therapy practice, when we start with something that's easy, again, we prime that little pump. We get them ready. We remember we're over here on the bike path. We can't just go for the hardest thing, for the newest word, for our target sound, our target word, whatever that is. We have to start over here with something that he can already do. So we get them talking with the default word. Now, what do I mean by default word? I mean a word that they can say no matter what. And if you are a parent of a kid with apraxia and if they are already verbal, you know their default words. It might be something that just seems to pop out all the time. It might be, it might be mommy, they might say, or mama. You might have mama to identify you, and mama is their requesting word, and mama is what they scream when they don't know what else to say, right? And so mama might be the default word. You just start with him when you know you're gonna introduce a, a new word. You, you cue mama a few times because you know he can do it. It starts that, that whole success loop going, and uh, you can move forward from there. So another reason that we start with words that a kid already knows is because we have to give kids, especially with apraxia, all late talkers, but especially 
especially when we know there's been a motor planning problem or there is a motor planning problem, we have to give them enough practice with any word to make it automatic or to strengthen it that it takes it from the bike path to the superhighway. <laughs> and so you only do that with practice. And we're going to talk about that a lot when we talk about mass practice in just a minute. But for right now, no, when you're practicing a kid's old words, you're still, or, or words that maybe aren't old, but they, he says it, he says it a lot. But what are you doing? You're just working for mastery. You're just making that word, turning it you know, into that super highway. That's what his little pathway in his brain is doing. The only way to get a path for a word is to practice it over and over and over. So we've got to give them lots of opportunities. So again, as... As therapists, we make this mistake a lot with kids with apraxia, and I've already given you that example where we try to get a new word, and then we spend the next 10 minutes of the session just in complete frustration and get nothing because we started at a point that's too hard. Let's avoid it. Let's teach parents. Let's make it easier for kids initially, and then by always cueing that established word or that word that, that you know. It may not even be a default word, but a word that they can say. Always, always, always to begin a speech practice. Now, the net, and, and we want to make it easy, and so th th that's what we're sticking with through this whole tip. So the next way that we can start with easy and then make it more complicated is to provide cues and feedback for word attempts. Now, we talked a lot about cues and feedback in last show in 430. And that was really for professionals. And so as a parent, if you just turn that show off <laughs> because it was too technical for you, let me give you a better explanation today. Cues are what we do to help a, a child before he says the sound know how to say it. Feedback is what we give after a child has said something that lets him know how he did. And so if you got the handout for this show uh, and you're looking here on the handout, I say provide cues and feedback for every word attempt that a child has. The truth is that's a little bit unrealistic. And so I wanted to pull that back a little bit. Before we think about doing it for every attempt when we're focused on speech, we need to uh, practice doing it when something's really, really fun, and we need to save most of our cues and most of our feedback for when we know that a child can be more successful. So this goes back into what we were saying about before in uh, tip number two with making learning to talk as fun as possible. And so uh, we're not always gonna cue every single word and every single feedback, but we will do it when we know that a child is more likely to be able to uh, produce the word correctly when he's having fun with us and when he's motivated with us. So again, let's go back and break this down and really talk about what we mean by cues and feedback. Now we talked about shaping too, and what is shaping? Shaping means that we're gonna take that what a kid can do and then we're gonna help him change it little by little to make it closer and closer and closer to the word that we want him to say. All right, so when we talk about cues, and I already mentioned this when I, I said we were gonna talk about it, with our cueing strategies, our verbal cues, our visual cues, and our tactile cues. So verbal, visual, and tactile. So for parents, we have to break this down and use everyday language. And so the very best way that I've ever found to do this, and I, I talk about this, and if you've listened to me, you've heard me say this before, but it's just the very best way to cue to teach anything, is tell him, show him, help him. So tell him is that verbal part. So you're going to model what you want your child to say. And so now we're working through again with starting with how we work a child from easier to more complex. 
we model what we want a child to say and then as another part of this telling him is telling him how to say it so we're going to give him a lot of feedback with what he could do with that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute for some examples for the telling him part. But for right now, know that that's a critical part. You have got to model the words that you want your child to say over and over and over again. Do not worry about being too repetitive. Do not worry about staying with the same word, you know, longer than you think you should. Remember all that that we just talked about, about how making the pathway from the bike path to the superhighway. You've got to practice that way a lot. So that's the telling him part. The telling him part also is the part that we're about to talk, talk about in a minute where you're going with the feedback. And we'll just save that then for those kinds of things. But here on the front end of that, it's giving him cues. You might say, okay, now listen, listen to mama. You're going to, you're going to. You're going to listen, you know, and so you're telling him what you want him to do. Oh, on this sound, we have to close our lips, and you're giving him those things. And we talked about back in show 433 that we're going to mention in a minute, giving every sound a name. And I gave you the list of that. You can also get some information about that in my book, Functional Phonology. And I'll mention this again at the end, but that's that's got the whole chapter, the whole list of what speech pathologists or, and what I have adapted from other speech pathologists, what we kind of call these little speech sounds. But that, that's part of that verbal cues. That's really, really important. And that's really, really important for kids with apraxia because we often have to get them started right and then we have to give them feedback about uh, what they've said so that they can know what they could change for next time. So that's the telling part. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go too. Show him the next part of that. These are these visual cues. So you have got to get him to look at your mouth and to watch you. And, and part of that too is you you being a good visual model. So you've got to exaggerate your mouth movements. So when you're saying a word like more, you don't just say more, you're going more. And for a kid with apraxia, if I haven't said this already, it's the movements, it's getting, it's the sequencing, it's getting to the right place to produce the sound and then getting to the next sound. That's what kids with apraxia have difficulty with. And so we as adults and, 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 and therapists, you've got to tell your parents this, you've got to talk to them about it. It's that movement pattern that we've got to get. And this is why therapy for apraxia is based on mode treatment it's not just it's I mean it is understanding the word that you want to use but a lot of kids with apraxia they already have all that they already have all those prelinguistics it's just this motor pace and so again emphasizing how sounds are made and how to get from one sound to the next the best thing that parents can do with that is just to really be a good speech model so to exaggerate those speech movements to make sure their children are watching their faces to talk about how they produce their sounds and again as SLPs you need to give parents the verbiage for that and parents you need to listen to your SLPs as they give you the verbiage for that so you'll know what to cue and how to cue that but again that showing him peace is really really important the next piece help him do it for some kids with apraxia even in this toddler and preschool period that's impossible I mean they are not going to let you touch their faces but some kids will and so when you find if that seems to help if if you're working on say getting uh, your lips spread for a different vowel you want your vowel you're working on vowel differentiation and every, the kid says uh for everything and you're trying to get some rounding for oh or for ooh you want to get some puckering you can use your fingers to do that or for maybe you're trying to get closure for your bilabials or even some rounding maybe for like W you can use you can use some gent 
mental, physical cues, but don't overdo that. That can, again, drive kids away from you, and you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do it. All right, so let's talk about, we talked about cues a little bit, and for parents, remember, tell her, show her, help her, and you're going to give her as best you can the cues to get started in conjunction with working with your therapist with that or if you need better tools again this isn't the show to be super technical about that go back and listen to show 433 where I've talked a lot about that or get my book functional phonology that teaches you how to do that but you want to provide those specific feedback after a child has said something so think about it as positive reinforcement so you might say something like "Ooh, I love the way you rounded your lips when you said choo choo you might do something like that or you might say oh you said that just right you said daddy I can see your teeth your teeth daddy those were your teeth that's your teeth sound and so again those kinds of cues are so important. So go back and listen to show 433 if that's new information for you. And as therapists, if you're not using those kinds of cues, get the list from Functional Phonology and start using those cues with, with kids because it gives them a semantic representation of what you uh, want them to say and they can remember that's my throaty sound. She's saying throaty sound. That's that that I make way, make way back there in my throat. So get yourself a copy of some of those cueing strategies so that you can use that. You can also use this kind of feedback for correction. So you might say things like, if he's trying to say, let's use an easy one. If he's trying to say, let's just go with mama, and he calls you uh-uh for mama, you're saying, you know, oh, no, oh, no. This would be your feedback. Watch, look, I've got to close my lips. Mmm, mama. And it's that real exaggerated, that real focused attention to your mouth that kids with apraxia really, really need. And will they be able to, to make huge gains with the, these kinds of ways that you are going to cue them? Possibly not, but you've just got to keep going with it because that kind of feedback is what we know makes a big, big difference. And the, the way that I said that was kind of weird there. I wish I had not said possibly not. I wish I had just said, hey, even if it doesn't seem like a child is responding to these kinds of cues, you've got to do it because kids with apraxia, again, learning how to talk for them is not automatic. They've got to overcome some pretty big obstacles and one of them is just knowing how to get from one sound to the next and how to really make these speech sounds and then how to connect them and so they need this kind of feedback and as toddlers will they be able to comprehend uh, the same kinds of cues and feedback that we're going to give a kindergartner no they're not but we've got to start here and remember again one thing that I think I said back I think I've already said it in this show but even if I didn't one of our jobs as early intervention SLPs is to prepare some of our kids to be in therapy for a long time. <laughs> so they're going to learn, like we said, imitation, which is what all of our other speech therapy techniques are based on, learning how to follow these kinds of directions. These are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about, that we're setting the stage for future success, and parents uh, certainly do that too. All right, the next part of this fourth strategy or fourth tip for parents of toddlers and preschoolers with apraxia is this, never, ever, 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 ever be satisfied with just one production of the word. Now that's true for all late talkers and for late talkers and our other little friends with language delays, we say that, but we say that from a semantic perspective or from a meaning or a vocabulary perspective or comprehension. We want a kid to 
Understand that word and use it, use it, use it, use it, use it because it's meaningful for them. For kids with apraxia, they have to say it, say it, say it, say it, say it so they can say it. So it's kind of the same thing, but it's the motor part of this. And so remember what we said earlier about kids with apraxia? Because they have difficulty establishing that motor plan for speech movements, they have got to have lots and lots and lots of practice. And so again, as a parent of a kid with apraxia, never feel like you're too repetitive. The repetitiveness and the predictability is what's gonna make it a lot easier for your child to learn how to talk. So when your child is learning a new word, he's gotta say it over and over and over. And because your kid has apraxia, he's also gotta practice it correctly. And that's one of the things that kids with apraxia have so much difficulty with. They may produce the same word three or four different ways within a few minutes. And so that's why we have to do the cueing and the feedback much more so than if a kid just had a straight speech delay or language delay. I mean, we've really got to help him know not only what word he wants to say, but how to say it. And that's a lot harder. And so we have to kind of get into that practice loop. And that's where you're going to cue the word, and again, you're going to use the cues that your therapist is teaching you uh, with, uh, or that you learned from the podcast from 433, or that you've learned in, uh, if you've gotten my book, Functional Phonology, or Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, or if you've listened to the other podcasts, whatever, however you learned it, whatever cue you're using for your child, You've got to cue it, and then you've got the, you've got to model it so the kid can imitate it. The kid has to imitate it, so he's practicing it. You've got to give him some feedback about how he said it, and then you've got to get right back into practicing some more, and then you've got to give more feedback, and then more cues, and then more practice, and you've just got to get that whole loop going. That's what speech therapy is. And because our little guys with apraxia need so much practice, it's got to look a lot more like drill, and it's got to look a lot more like, again, what we think about for older speech therapy. That's why so many times uh, people who work on apraxia want to take out those darn cards. Even for a two-year-old, they want the two-year-old to sit there and practice flipping flashcards with them, which is completely unrealistic for so many two-year-olds that we see. And so as a parent and as a therapist, as a therapist first, you've got to get a kid into that practice loop where you, you cue it, you model it, they say it, they imitate it, and you provide feedback, you provide cues, you model it, they imitate it, they say it, and you keep it going, and you've gotta get a parent into that same kind of loop where they are also giving those same kinds of cues and that same kind of feedback. Sometimes it's easier said than done, but gosh, we have got to get to that point. All right, another point with this, with never, ever, ever be satisfied with one production of a word, Therapists call this mass practice, and again, that's not just that we get the kid to say the same word over and over and over just for the sake of saying it. We have to give toddlers and preschoolers a reason to do that. So we have to set up activities so that they can practice saying the same words over and over and over. So think about that as a parent. That might, you know, again, mean that you're not just gonna have three race cars to play with, you might get 20 race cars, so you have more of an opportunity for him to say car, and he can keep requesting that. And you're gonna learn how to master withholding so that you don't give your kid, uh, he doesn't get a turn until he's requested the car again or said whatever his little target word is again. And so you give him the toy, he's able to play with it, you take it back, he says the same target word again, you give it back, and so you might do that over and over and over. And I don't mean give it back in the sense that you are being mean and you are withholding that and you are, 
you know, saying, you can't get it until you say it. You're not doing that. You're just cueing him. You're saying, oh, I think you want a, I think you want a ball. I, I think you need another ball. You tell me. Tell me ball. Say ball. Get your lips together. Ball. And then he tries to say it, and then, you know, you give him the ball, and then he does whatever he does with the ball, and then you grab the ball out of the toy or have the next ball ready to go. But again, you create that loop. It might be that... He loves you playing uh, a game where you throw him up in the air. And so your target word might be up. Uh, at the beginning, you wouldn't work on a final P, but let's use this at, let's just use this for the sake of example. It might just be that you're satisfied with him going up or up. And certainly, you know, that's how it would be at the beginning uh, for any toddler. You know, we just want to get anything. But let's just for the sake of this example, you, you're practicing working on getting a consonant at the end of the word. And your target here is up. And so you're not going to just have him say up two times and then move on and do something else. No. Your arms are going to be exhausted. <laughs> you need to throw him up in the air, you know, 25 times. And then you're giving him every single time. You throw him up in the air. You put him back down. And you say, what do you say? What do you want to do? What do you want mama to do? And he says, ah. Uh, and you say, oh, come on, come on. Get your lips together. Say it like mama. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, you do it. You do it. Tell me. Lips together. Ah, uh, And then he tries to say it. And he gets that pee on there. And then you throw him up as soon as he gets the pee on there. What do you do if he doesn't meet your target? My philosophy is we try three to five times, and then even if he doesn't do it, we still reward him with what he wants to do. So we would still throw him up. You would still give him that cue. But again, you're giving him those multiple opportunities to practice. And we, we do it over and over and over again. For a snack, it might be that you've got a chocolate chip cookie. It might even be that you've got the little Teddy Graham chocolate chip cookies, but you do not give your kid a whole cookie. You break that cookie into as many pieces as you can and have him say more or bite or please or cookie or eat or, or I want more, Mama. Whatever your target is, whatever it is. And again, remember what we said about toddlers with apraxia or suspected apraxia. We're going to go easy first. So you might start off with that first bite of that cookie because he really, really wants it, saying more. But you could work him up into saying or trying to say cookie. Or if he's at the phrase level, work him into trying to say more please or more cookie please. Or it might be that he can't do that at all. And you're working through your attempt with your next little bite of the cookie just to find something he can't try to say. You may be backing down to that default word to, you know, something like E for eat. And again, as a parent, still model the whole word. You can still say, tell me eat, tell me eat, even though you've got your final T on there. And even if he can't do it, if he's just trying to say E, you know, what I'm trying to say is he's not going to be perfect. Whatever your goal is, if, you're, if your goal is final T, yeah, you want to try to get that. But if your goal is just for him to be able to imitate you and to use a word to request, then you've met that goal. My point is here, mass practice, you've got to set up the situation for him to say the same word over and over and over again. And that is another really, really, really important difference in kids who have apraxia versus uh, kids who have just a language delay. They've got to have that practice built in. And remember what I said too about the even the more important reason that they have to have that focused practice is they have difficulty getting from one sound to the next. So we've got to work on those movement patterns. So it isn't just that you've had a child say, uh-oh. For a kid with apraxia, you know, that's that's a that's a word with two different vowels. He's got he's got to slide from that neutral vowel to the O to the where his lips are 
or rounded at the front of his mouth. And so that's the part that's hard for him. And so that's why you have to practice that word over and over and over and over and over again for a kid with apraxia is to get that uh, movement pattern and to get to that next sound. And so we have to really talk about uh, being good speech models with our kids. And I, I've already talked about this a uh, little bit ago, but for therapists who are coaching parents, you've got to really teach them with this. A big part of starting with easy and building that pattern of success is slowing down and modeling that word and then exaggerating those movement patterns uh, to get from one sound or one word to the next. All right, the last little dot here, the last little point under starting with easy vocalizations and words to build a pattern of success is something I talked about last time in show 433, but I want to talk about it again with parents because it's such an important lesson to be sure that parents are learning. We have to find a balance between being fun and demanding. Now, over the years, I have found that all adults, whether they are parents or whether they are therapists, tend to lean toward one end of the spectrum or other. So you might have a therapist that's so fun, your kid loves her, he just, he just adores her, but they never ask a kid to do anything, they never really get anything done, you're having a great time in therapy, again, she's a member of your family, but you're not sure your kid is making a lot of progress. Those therapists need to learn how to be a little bit more demanding. And then on the other hand, and this might be a parent, this might be a mom or a dad or whoever, but they are just so demanding and they are just you know, they somehow think that they are in complete control of their child talking. And so if they can just demand enough and insist enough that that their child will be able to overcome that, and that doesn't work even, either. Even as a therapist, that kind of approach doesn't work. So you have got to find that balance between being fun and demanding. You've got to do both. So to be fun, we've already talked about that a lot. We've got to choose things that kids like. We've got to get really, really good at identifying those preferences. We've got to focus on prioritizing that communication piece and being together and not being so demanding as far as articulatory perfection is concerned, meaning they get the right sounds in the right places every single time, but that we are focusing on that message that they are giving us. And again, for us to be fun but demanding, and I haven't talked about this in this show, and I, I certainly want to do this before we close here. We've got to do everything we can to look fun. So you've got to make your face just look as fun as you can. You've got to be animated. You've got to sound fun. So you can't just phone this kind of therapy in. You've got to be on it. You've got to be in it so that your child, again, is participating in the way that you want him to participate. If you were bored, there's an even better chance that your child is bored too. <laughs> so you've got to always remember that and uh, do everything that you can uh, to get that going in the right in the right place. Back to being fun but demanding, you've got to expect that a child will respond and you've got to encourage them to try. And so with kids with apraxia, sometimes they kind of get back into that sort of passive mode verbally. And so sometimes we'll even see a kid try to go back to do signs. And, and I was talking about this at the beginning. You know, we start a kid off easy, but we've got to get them bumped up. So once a child is warmed up and is participating with you, require his best and his highest possible response most of the time. And again, with the strategies that we've shared today, you can implement all of these every single one of these and still be fun. It's you you can you can get 50 productions of the same word and still be fun. You can cue a child before she set, gets 
any before you give her one single toy or one single bite of a snack you can cue and cue and cue and still be fine so that's what you want to do you still want to make sure that you are uh, providing everything you can and don't let fun be synonymous with uh, not anything getting accomplished you've got to do everything in your power to create that environment so that the child wants to respond so that he needs to respond to get the next turn to get the next uh, snack to get the next whatever you've got to set that up and encourage him and then know though even though I'm saying that there's always the counterbalance when a child is really really frustrated that's when I know that I'm going to back off at least just a little bit and so that leads me to tip number five now if you are a therapist you may not like everything that I'm about to say in this next little section but it's so important for parents to hear and so again I guess I'm I guess I'm really just talking to parents directly here when things are not working especially in therapy you have got to reset you cannot waste therapy time or waste time for your child with development and never I don't want to say never because I hate it when people act like that you know we are the only people in history who've ever lived through a worldwide pandemic but if you're in that situation where your child has gotten little to no therapy you just do not have any time to waste on bad therapy right now <laughs> and so when things aren't working you've got to reset and so let's Let's start talking about this. Let, let's start talking about it from the perspective that we've already addressed. So this would mean, let's, let's start micro. So this would mean even at home with you, when you were working with your child who has apraxia or suspected apraxia and things are going terrible, stop. <laughs> don't waste your time, don't waste his time. You've got to reset. So more often than not, that means you're just going to pause for a minute, collect yourself. You may go right back to the same activity, but as I just started to say, more often than not, that means you're just going to move on to a new activity. If this is something that you're not thinking, you know, this is in my regular speech therapy time and I'm just going to move on to the next toy, which would be ideal, you could just move on to the next toy and pick up your practice and get your strategies going and still work on your child's speech, just that next little thing. But sometimes if he's really, really upset or if it's you, if you just need a breather, take that break. That is going to be the best thing you can do to, to, to pause and take a step back. Don't get caught up in the cycle where you are just continually engaged in a power struggle with your child, even with your child with apraxia, because what's it going to do? What's it going to do? It's going to overload his system. And remember what I said before about when a kid's overstimulated, he doesn't learn anything. You aren't going to accomplish anything. So when that's happening at home with you in a session, just reset. I'll do it in sessions all the time. Things are going terrible. I'll we put up what we're doing, we sing the cleanup song, and we get out something else. If it's really bad, I break into song right there <laughs> because I want to do everything I can to promote that positive pattern and that, that, that pattern of success. So that's number one. Let's talk about what to do. Oh, another thing that we can do is another strategy here that we said we would do. We would do move, sit, move, sit, move, sit. And so that might be something we do in the context of uh, a session at home where uh, I'm, I'm the mom and I'm working with my child on his speech and it's he's about, I know I'm about to lose him. I can sense the frustration coming. It's building. We're about to have a meltdown. We're, he's, he's about to just lose it or a tantrum, how, what, however you want to think about it. 
Head it off at the pass. Get up and run. You think he needs to get up from here? Okay, he's going to say this for me one more time, and then we're uh, we're doing something completely different for 15 minutes. And so that's the kind of thing that you need to do. Look at how we, uh, at how that's already kind of built in to what we said. Anytime when things aren't working, we're going to do a reset. Okay, so let's go back to this part where I said that therapists might not like it. But it, let me just say this. If you're the kind of therapist that you're watching this show and listening to the show, this, this probably isn't you. But it might be because the truth is we all get fired. <laughs> we all get fired from time to time with a family. We all have families that we're just not a good uh, fit for or that whatever we're going through in our life does not mesh with whatever they're going through in their life. And for whatever reason, it's just not a good fit. That happens. And so as a therapist, you know, you deal with that. You deal with it. But as a parent, I can't imagine paying for therapy services or letting my resource, my insurance coverage be gobbled up by session after session after session that's just not going very well. And so when this is happening, you've got to find a therapist, switch programs, switch switch therapists, switch whatever. And again, it's your therapist that might, might make you mad that I've said that, but it's the truth. We can't let kids stay in programs where they are ineffective. And so as a parent, maybe that's me empowering you today. Now, let me also say that programs and therapists are hard to come by in a lot of places. And you might be in a situation that that is just not going to be the best option for you. You may say this kind of mediocre stuff that we've got going down in therapy is better than nothing. I hear you. And if that's you, that's great. But my point here for tip number five is when things aren't working, reset. I'll tell you about something else that as a therapist you might not want to hear. But it happens sometimes we have kids who get so frustrated and parents who are so worn out from just the exhausting schedule that they're trying to keep up from therapy session to therapy session to therapy session that everybody just needs to take a little mini vacation. And again, this is probably a lot more relevant when we didn't have all the delays that we've had these past, you know, this is our third winter of COVID, right? And so this, this may not be the advice that would be relevant for everyone. If you're still getting hit or miss therapy services, this, you do not want to take a speech vacation because you have already had more speech vacation than you would ever want to. But at the same time, when you feel that a family is so frustrated or when you think, and sometimes I'll think this mom is driving this kid crazy. She is just, she is so into speech and this is wonderful and she's fantastic, but I wish I could just get her to back off a little bit. Sometimes that little speech vacation, and it happens naturally a lot. You'll have Christmas break. You'll have kind of a summer break built in. A family will go on vacation or in the winter, kids will get sick. You'll have weather issues, whether it's snow or whatever. Hopefully it will naturally just happen, but when you get to a point where things are just too, a uh, child is just too frustrated or a parent is too frustrated, taking a speech vacation may be uh, what you need to do for that family. So I just wanted to recommend it for what it's worth. I've seen success with that where I've said to a mom, look, we've just gotten too negative here. He's, 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 he's shutting down on me. I can see that he's going to plateau. I have tried to pull it back for a couple weeks and do nothing but play, but I think, we, I think we're going to take two weeks off and I'll see you in two weeks and we're going to reset. And so sometimes that has been the very best thing that I've done for a family. So I want you to know that option's there. All right, so here we are at the end of the show. Let's take just a few minutes for me to review all five of these strategies. And again, as a therapist, this might be something you want to share with parents. And you might start 
a session with this and say, hey, I want to just talk to you about these five things real quick. And over the next few weeks, we're just going to highlight, you know, each one of these as we work through. If you are doing teletherapy sessions, this might be wonderful for you for helping direct some of your sessions with parents and again to get things started or to restart uh, with a family who might have had a negative experience and you just want to make sure that you are uh, covering all your bases. And remember what we talked about way back in show, I think it's at the beginning of show 432, and we said professionals can make such a huge difference. Even one positive encounter with a professional uh, can really set the stage for success for that child and really empower parents to get the best services and to provide the most quality intervention that they can provide at home because they've been so inspired uh, through that interaction you had with them. And so that's certainly something that we want to think about as we walk through that. All right, I was going to walk through the five strategies and then I put it down. Number one, know that some goals come before talking. So, so important, especially for getting kids in this earliest phase of treatment. We have to have our parents know that. We know that we're going to address prelinguistics, and if they need AAC, we are going to get that going. Number two, our second tip, make learning to talk as fun as possible. Talking is so hard for our little friends with apraxia, and so we want to do everything we can to get communication reestablished on a positive foundation. And so we're going to do the things that we talked about there, all the things we can do. We can uh, choose a kid's preferences. We're going to practice talking when we know it's going to do best when it, we're doing something that a child loves. And we're going to alternate between moving around and sitting down. Our third strategy, we're going to play imitation games all day long. And I told you how we do that. We start it with clapping or some, some action that a kid does with us automatically. And then we move it to the next one and then move it to the next one. And then we back off a little bit and then the next time we introduce the game we might add one more little hand motion there when a kid gets great at imitating all those motoric movements then we add some verbalizations and then we even bump it on up maybe later to add some words and so we get those imitation games going and we have parents do that all day long our fourth tip was we're going to start easy to build that pattern of success and our most important thing we were going to remember there is we always start with a word that we know that a child can say and so then we moved through our motor treatment principles. We talked about cueing and feedback, and we talked about mass practice, and we still talked about even in the middle of all that highly technical stuff, we are going to keep it fun, fun, fun. And then lastly, we said that when things aren't working, whether it be in an individual session, whether it be at home, whether it be overall for a program, or whether it be just our life, when things aren't working, we're going to take a step back and we're going to reset because we do not want to waste any time. We want to make this just as maximally as effective as possible. All right, let me give you some information about where you can get all of the strategies that I've talked about through this series on apraxia back in show 431. 432, 433, and now 434. They're all from these two books. And this is where I pull everything when I'm working uh, with my little friends with apraxia. The first one is Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. And I, I just did a whole podcast series on this specifically directed to late talkers. But it's so important for our little guys with apraxia, too, that we not start working up here at Words, that we started easier, earlier levels of imitation. And if you need a step-by-step -step process to teach your child to learn how to imitate, Building Verbal 
imitation skills and toddlers will walk you through that. Functional phonology is a little bit more technical. It's a language-based approach for helping clean up speech intelligibility in children. Our little guys with apraxia will need the patterns and the goals that I talk about in this book, but more than anything, I think it's gonna help you with your activities, especially when it comes to choosing activities for uh, moving around and sitting down. And it's just the very best way that I have compiled throughout my career uh, to work with toddlers who have those uh, speech intelligibility challenges, especially with apraxia. All right, that's it for today. That's it for this little series about treating apraxia in toddlers and preschoolers. And I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you've uh, gotten some takeaway uh, messages and some new strategies too. All right, that's really it. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. And thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talks podcast.